0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com.
1: Good morning, guys. Good morning. How you doing? Good. Good. Uh, it's good to see you guys again. West, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Just kind of dripping in thank you. Um, it is so... It's so good to have a home here, even though we're in transition, and um, I know there's all kinds of opportunity for frustration when, you know, two bodies collide. Um, It is a very good uh, real picture of us being one church, uh, often in two locations, and, you know, we're slamming into one location for longer than we ever expected and dreamed and uh, maybe even liked. But I'm. I love that we get to be here together. I love that I get to be here and camp out here. I love that we get we get to mingle. Um, really, I mean, friction happens when you start to uh, put two bodies together, right? And so that's natural. And conflict is okay. Let's uh, let's keep pushing through. I'm so grateful for West and your hospitality, um, and then uh, East being able to make the drive. And yeah, thank you. Um, so my family, I'm excited. My family's not here yet, I don't think. Um, we slept in Cottage Grove last night. We, uh, that's where we're going to rent for the year, and we moved a quarter of our stuff down, and we, uh, we camped out, and then Leslie's GPS failed on the way. So I'm, I'm somebody who doesn't know the way around, and I'm giving her directions to somebody who knows less of her way around. Um, so we'll see if they show up or if they take a prayer drive this morning um, around the Madison area. I'm, I'm hoping, but we are, we are a little bit closer to being uh, full-time here, living here, and uh, it was really wonderful to drive from Cottage Grove instead of from Fond du Lac this morning. Love that drive. Um, so last week, last week we had Karen up here uh, being able to celebrate 13 years in recovery of uh, addictions broken and freedom found in Christ. Um, and we get to do it again. Um, Scott, Karen told me that Scott uh, has an anniversary today. Would you come up? Can I embarrass you? Sure. Um, I, I love that we get to do this. I love that, um, and the gospel really does crash into life and really does bring healing and um, addictions can be can be broken. And so what I'm told is today, is it today? Friday. Friday was five years. Yes. Five years of living um, addiction free. And yes. the, the struggle is there, yes. but the addiction is broken. Yes. So that's awesome. Can we celebrate that?
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know the, the thing that 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 I'm always reminded of that I, I was 27 when I got saved, and uh, but I, I didn't come to to believe that Christ could take care of all of my junk <laughs> until five years ago when when I finally gave gave up and got out of my denial and saying that. You know, I can't deal with this either. Um, I need a, a savior to to take me out of this, and and He redeemed me. Praise God. Yeah.
1: So you would say Jesus saved you when you were twenty seven, and He keeps saving you yeah, from right. yourself. And right,
0: continues, and that's that's what uh, celebrate recovery. I really like celebrate recovery because it it's uh, it's an ongoing thing. It's um, um a while back I read an, an article by um, by Philip Yancey. I don't know if a lot of you know Philip Yancey, but he. Uh, he gave a speech at, a, at an AA meeting in Chicago, and the title of the speech was, I Wish I Was an Alcoholic, or Why I Wish I Was an Alcoholic, and it was because in, in, the, in the AA program, or in Celebrate Recovery, he says there's just an honesty there that I often don't see in the church. And he said there's an honesty and openness, and and, uh, and he sa- and it, ma- it makes the point that we're all, we're all broken, and we all need to be redeemed, and we all need uh, recovery in, in one way or another. And... Um, And I praise God for Celebrate Recovery here in in Damascus Road.
1: I have uh, the the Celebrate Recovery five-year coin that helps you celebrate and remember and keep pushing forward. Can I give that to you? Sure. And then as a body, as a family, can we pray with Scott? Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for uh, your love that transforms us and changes us and um, breaks us free. Um, from woundedness and brokenness sometimes that comes at us and sometimes that we we bring on ourselves. Uh, Thank you for Scott, uh, for his being able to stand up in uh, humility and honesty, but also a sense of um, pride and gratitude at a changed life that is his. Um, When we celebrate with him today, we ask that you would continue to strengthen him, continue to empower him. Uh, The battles don't stop but we can keep finding victory in you. So we thank you, Jesus. Thank you. and pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to start a brand new series today. Uh, the whole summer, we kind of, uh, we were in this Take the Land series through Joshua and really, really good stuff. And then last week was just kind of a standalone deal. And today we're going to start a series called uh, Faith Does. And it's a series through the book of James. It's a really, really cool... Like, I I can't wait to get into this through the book of James and be able to talk on a very, very practical level. But as I was preparing for today, I came across... That's not going to move. I came across... a really cool word picture. Um, Some of you guys may have heard of a guy named A.W. Tozer, and he wrote this. It's not quite poetry, sort of prose, um, really colorful language where he paints out um, um, the distinction between two different types of land, two different types of dirt. Are you guys okay if I uh, take a stab at reading that and starting this series looking at dirt? Does that sound fun? Good. So he says... He says, here are two kinds of ground, and I want you to picture, um, picture yourself. It might help you if you close your eyes. If not, don't worry. We're not going to get weird. There's two kinds of ground, and they apply to us. Okay? So there's fallow ground, he says, and ground that has been broken up by the plow. He says, the fallow field is content. It's protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow. I had to look up harrow. I'm not a farm guy. Um, the plow, you know, digs through, creates the trough, and the harrow comes through Is kind of those forks that keep on scraping. Um, you can't, I, I couldn't tell you what they're for, exactly, or the harrow. It cuts, it digs, right? Such a field, this fallow field, lie, uh, as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Had it intelligence... It might take up a lot of satisfaction in, in its reputation. It has stability. Nature has adopted it. It can be counted up upon to remain always the same, while the fields around it change from brown to green and back to brown again. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. Sound good, Anybody? Man, there are days where I wish that I could just lie in a field lazily contented. Does that sound good? It sounds really good. But the author continues. A.W. Tozer continues. It says, But this field is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of the bursting seed, nor the beauty of the ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it's afraid of the plough and the harrow. And then he says, in direct opposite to this is the cultivated field. It's yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened and admitted the plough, and the plough has come as ploughs always come, practical, cruel, business like and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered. By the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery, the field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come. The seeds shoot up in the daylight, the miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born, to grow, to mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Nature's wonders follow the plow. And then he goes on and he says, there are two kinds of lives too. There is a life that is safe. It says, don't disturb me. I, I, I want to be safe. I want to be comfortable. That's what I'm aiming at in life. And I'm afraid of change. I'm afraid of being broken. Who isn't? But I'm going to stay safe right here. And there's another that says, I'm going to open myself up to adventure. I'm going to open myself up to being broken because in brokenness, new life happens. He says, the curse of the safe life is a life that's fixed, both in size and content. To be has taken the place of to become. The worst that can be said of such a man is that he is what he will be. He has fenced himself in, and by the same act, he has fenced out God and the miracle. But to be broken is to open yourself up to bringing forth fruit. Now which field do you want to be? I want to be a broken field. I mean, that is a dangerous prayer. God, will you break me? God, will you show me my brokenness that's already there that I'm hiding from? God, would you open me up to what you have for me because I don't want to live an adventureless life like a little hobbit in the shire, safe and sound and content right there. Though that sounds really good at times, I don't want to live just like that. I want, if you have an adventure for me, don 't let me miss it even if it means me getting broken in the process James helps us do that the book of James is all about how do I live this life following Jesus if I'm somebody who has received the good news of Christ that in my brokenness Christ was made broken so that uh, so that I could become whole in my brokenness Christ has a A different plan for my life. That I could find new life, that I could find healing, that I could see a new adventure in Christ. James says, How do we live this life? Because it's one thing, like Scott said this morning, when I was 27, I got saved. It's one thing to receive the gospel, it's a whole different thing to live the gospel for the rest of your life, right? We don't just believe in Jesus so we get to go to heaven when we die though I can't wait for that. That is going to be good, good, good. But right here and right now, life can change. And life can be transformed. We will always live in this broken world until we die or Jesus comes back, right? But while we were in this life, we can see transformation. So the life that Jesus brings begins here and now, and it goes forever. And James says, how do I live it here and now? How do I live it here and now? In light of what's coming, how do I live out the gospel? This is an uncomfortable book. This is an uncomfortable book because he says it's not just about believing and then doing nothing. It's about believing and then starting to walk in that And that that starts to push us in because all of us have more growth to do. All of us have brokenness that uh, needs Jesus to come in and continue to transform us. We all have that. And we all have this, I think, we have this pull toward the safe life. I changed. I'm done changing. Jesus came in and saved me. I'm done being saved. I'm good now. I was a wreck then. I'm good now. I just want to stay where I'm at. Like the yearbook signing, never change I I hate that one, okay? I hope I'm different than when I was in middle school. I really do, okay? But the other life means that people can poke in. means that I'm not done growing. means that James will poke me in the chest again and again and again and again. We're going to do 15 weeks in James. That's our plan right now. That's 15 weeks of poking, if you guys are okay with that, okay? Are you guys okay with that? Otherwise, find a different church. Um, I don't. I don't mean to be cruel, but you're going to get uh, you're going to get blasted with it, and you won't like it. Okay. But but the adventure. Okay. The transformation. Jesus holds us accountable. Jesus doesn't just say be saved and then do nothing. You guys remember the parable of the talents, where he gives he a master goes on his way and he leaves uh, the talents. He lives. Um, Amounts of money with each of his three servants. And then when he comes back, he says, what did you do with what I gave you? And Jesus says, that's me and that's you. What did you do with what I gave you? He's going to hold us accountable one day to what he gave us and what we did with it. You can see it in Revelation too. The start of Revelation is really cool where Jesus visits these seven different churches in seven different locations. And for most of them, he's got praise. But usually for each one, he says, but I hold this against you. This is accountability. This is accountability. Jesus is coming back and he's saying, you're missing the mark here. Now this is true for all of us. All of us are missing the mark all the time in certain different areas. Okay? So we need somebody like James to poke us. The major theme through James is James wants his readers to devote themselves anew to a life un- of undivided commitment to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we continually commit ourselves to living for Jesus wholeheartedly with all of us. No, so, I don't see all of who I am. But when I see more of me, and I see more of my brokenness, I commit that to Jesus. And that's what James is about. It's all, uh, James is like this, he brings up so many different practical points. So people have thought, James is like this incoherent, I don't don't understand where he's going. He doesn't have a point in mind, he's just kind of like, oh yeah this, and then that, and then this. But through James, you can find catchwords that draw your attention, that start a brand new topic that says, oh yeah, living the life following Jesus, it's this, and he does have kind of this flow of wholehearted follow after Jesus wholeheartedly. But we're going to talk about we're going to talk about topics like today. We're going to talk about trials. We're going to talk about uh, when stuff comes at you in life. How do you respond to that? We're going to talk about wisdom and humility. We're going to talk about temptation. We're going to talk about favoritism. We're going to talk about this combination between faith and works. Uh, what do you do with your tongue and taming the tongue and the, the poison that we can spew out sometimes? James talks about that. He talks about selfishness and relationships and looking too much like the broken world around us. He talks about judging others and money and patience and prayer. And I don't know about you guys, but I can use growth in every single one of those categories. James addresses it, and so we're gonna, we're going to go in. Okay? So... Um, I don't know if this has ever been done here before. um, For the last 15 years, I did youth ministry, so we did this interactive thing, okay? Um, And I wouldn't just stand up and, like, puke, um, but we kind of had sort of a conversation going, I'm wondering if we can start that way. As we dive into Faith Does with James, I wonder if I could have a couple different volunteers. It could be young people. It could be older people. It could be much older people. Um, We're... Whoever wants to take a stab and come up, I'm not going to make you feel dumb or too much. Yes, awesome. Come on up. What are you going to make us? I'm going to make you draw. <laughs> I'm going to show off your art. Okay? Um, but it's kindergarten level. Perfect. 3. We got it. Okay, give him a hand. Okay. Here, here's what I want you to do. It's a very very simple. Uh, who wants to go first?
0: Well, John. Oh,
1: nice. Okay. You got here and two and then are you, which campus do you call your home most of the time? East. East, okay. So we've got west, east, east going on. Um, but west, notice west was the first to jump, yeah. which is cool, okay? Uh, east, come on now. Um, here's your assignment. I want you to draw a triangle, and I want you to, then to mark on the triangle where the leader goes. Nice. All right, next up. And then, and then I want you to wait for a little bit and explain it. Explain your thinking we got two different pictures of the leadership so far. And a third? I'm going to copy. Okay. But
0: we might say different things.
1: Cheater. <laughs> okay. Give me your X. Ex- I put my leader in the middle, so
0: he's kind of equally visible as we can see, him. he's not too far apart, and I read anybody behind. He's kind of right there. They're showing this way. go in this direction. That's where he's pointing. Okay. This is where he wants to be. Eventually,
1: with other people falling up that way, but he doesn't want to leave anybody behind, so he's, that's right. Beautiful. to well, you Beautiful. Like, you like his picture of leadership? Yeah. Okay, give him a hand. Okay, excellent. Okay, number two. Uh,
0: I put the leader at the top because um, you have followers. So, and I mean, and you, and you, want, your, you want to expand your base. Okay, so you can get as many people That's kind of I, I don't know
1: I just that looks right. Um, the leader has followers. you guys buy that it's been said if you think you 're a leader and no one's following, you just take a hike, okay um, so good, leaders at top because the followers are uh, taking their cues from the leader and cheater um, number three number three. Um, well, <laughs> th- what, what were you thinking other than that looks good?
0: Uh, I put mine in the center because, um, well, I just think it's like like when you throw a rock in the water and you have ripples that go out, it's like whatever is going on in the center, that's going to radiate out, and yeah. everyone around you is going to, that's going to kind of be what everyone sees and the example and what's set and the energy there.
1: Excellent. You like that? Yeah. Three different pictures of leadership. Give them a hand. I'm going to draw a different picture, okay? I'm not going to say any of those are wrong, because you can't do that today. Um, but, if, I mean, if you read about leadership, you're going to find all of these points come up. All of these are important. Here's a different one. I think, um, I think Jesus paints a different picture. Jesus often flips it upside down. So, I said draw a triangle. Everybody draws it like this. Jesus, I think, draws a different triangle. And there's the leader, Okay? And I'm going to show it to you. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew 20. And then we're going to get to James. Matthew 20, there's this really cool conversation between Jesus and his followers. And uh, to give you a little bit of context here. um, When there was a king, he would sit in his throne. Who is, where does the second in command sit? At At his right side. And then next? Like, the two most important people in his kingdom sit at his right and his left. They are the two most powerful. They are, if he would ever take a vacation or not be there, they would be next in line to take over. Okay? So, knowing that, let's read this. In Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother, as mothers often do, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with him, Uh, came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something. he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Oh, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Mom. So they're having this mother-son conversation like, son, I believe in you. You've got so much leadership potential. Man, when Jesus is done leading, I think you and you would be fit to lead in his place, Right? So mom says, hey, Jesus, have you seen my sons in action? Give me this promise, as you, like, you to, my, you to me and my mother's heart. This would do me good, okay? When you're done, like, can they, can they right here, right? Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And the boys said to him, or the young men said to him, we are able And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom uh, it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, so there's twelve that are in the closest circles, when the ten heard what was going on, they're like, whoa, wait, they were indignant at the two brothers, indignant, super mad, not just like, oh, that sounds interesting, mad, okay, They were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Lord it over them, and their their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, I'm going to flip your world upside down. So you want to be a leader? You go to the bottom. You want to lead in my kingdom? You become the greatest servant. And just just to let you know that I mean it, Jesus says, that's exactly what I came for. I didn't come to uh, press down on your lives and say you follow me or else. I came to serve you to seek and to save you, and I, I'm giving my life for you. And if you want to drink my cup, that's what you're going to do. You're going to pour yourself out for others. You are going to be a servant. And he uses this word, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, in verse 26. That word in the, in the Greek, I'm not a Greek student, so this is making me sound smart. Um, that word in the Greek is doulos. Of the few biblical words that I know... We talked about a hesed already, and doulos is a close second. Doulos means servant or slave, if you want to get really, really literal. Okay? Jesus says, you want to be a leader? I want you to be a slave. Okay? A slave for others, that you would be a servant, that you would see yourself as so committed. Now, in our day, in our country, slave is a filthy word. We did it wrong. We messed it up. We, um, we have wounded so many people and made such a... Our slavery is so twisted and messed up that we see the word slave in the Bible and we think that's, an, that's automatically an ugly thing. And it, slavery had ugliness back then, but it was a totally different kind of slavery. So there was a form of slavery or servitude where if you had a debt to pay off, you could become someone's slave, until your debt was paid off, and then you could be on your way. It was indentured servitude. Okay? I have a debt. I'm going to pay it, and I'm going to uh, then go on my way. A lot, now, a lot of people have this approach to the gospel. I have a debt. I'm going to work and work and work and, and stack up the good to the bad, and then I'll be good. Then I'll be on my way. Okay? And Jesus blows that out of the water. He says, your debt can never be paid by you. It's going to take your master paying off your debt our master who is a slave for us okay so he says i want you to become a slave i want you to become a servant and it's something that we would submit to we would submit ourselves in service for others james this summer uh james griffin was preaching this summer and he had one line in his sermon where he says we might uh we make ourselves servants uh to people though they will never be our masters you guys get that it was brilliant. It was profound. We serve others, but they are not our masters. We have one master. So as we follow our master, we make ourselves servants of his and also servants of others because we know who our master is. Right? We don't have to work up the hierarchy of leadership and try and step on other people's toes and throw people down under us so that we can get higher and higher and higher. We lower ourselves. We humble ourselves. And then Jesus lifts us up. Okay. So... Why, why in the world are we doing this whole thing when we're starting James? Is because this is how he starts his book. So James starts out, and he says, the, the very first words of James, he says, James, a servant. James, a doulos. And this is how he identifies himself. I think this is so important. He is a leader in the church. He's actually like... Uh, right there with Peter, and a lot of people say he was a notch above Peter in the Jerusalem church. This is the guy. This is the man. And how he identifies himself, James, a leader in the church in Jerusalem, James, the apostle in Jerusalem, James, I have authority over you. I can tell you all these things. He says, James, a servant. I'm here to serve. And he says, who is he serving? He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James starts out this way. For James, it's crystal clear how he lives his life. He lives his life to serve. To serve God, to serve Jesus, and he he weds them too. So he, he's coming out of the Jewish community, and he's making God and Jesus um, together, which is a cool deal. Okay? Now the other cool deal about James is he's the brother of Jesus. Some people will say... Uh, technically, he's the half-brother, and I say they're both correct. Okay, uh, They have different fathers, same mother, grew up in the same family. If you know somebody who's adopted, um, somebody who has adopted a child and not biologically theirs, you wouldn't dare go up to them and say, Oh, how's your relationship with your half-brother? No, Right? You don't do, they are brothers. They're siblings in every sense of the term. Not biologically, but they're in the same family. So I'll say James and Jesus are brothers. Okay? They have an adoptive brother relationship, which is really, really cool. Okay? Now, the other, the other deal about James being the brother of Jesus is when Jesus was living in his ministry, James thought Jesus was a nutcase. James thought Jesus was a nutcase. At one time, they had all the siblings go out to track down Jesus and try and do an intervention. Like, dude, you're claiming to be God. Knock that off. Okay? Our family is paying a price for your audacity. You've got to quit. But something happens in James. Something happens. So that after Jesus is murdered, after he rises from the dead, James is struck and he says... Not only did he know what he was saying, he was right. And so James, who grew up with Jesus, who saw, it, who saw all kinds of family tension, because families have tension, even though his brother never sinned, and mom, I bet, held that over him, right? Um, James now says, I serve Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. He's my brother. He's my Lord. Okay. So just in this first verse of James, we get some cool word pictures. James is a servant. Um, and he serves God. He serves Jesus. We know that he's he's the brother of Jesus, um, and that's what's going on. And he he says um, this letter is going out to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, which is basically um, which is basically connecting to the Old Testament and the twelve tribes of the Old Testament. But it's also connecting to this new family of faith uh, in Christ. This baby this baby family of Christ. James actually is the first book. Written in the New Testament. Okay? The very first book, Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, they're not there. Okay? James is the first one to take a crack at it. And he says, if you want to follow Jesus, this is what it's about. He doesn't have the other ones to lean on at that point, but he's saying, this is, this is what it looks like. And um, persecution had hit the church. And so people had, they started it in Jerusalem. Um, And Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the outermost end. That had started to happen. So they had dispersed from Jerusalem, and they're going out all over the place because of persecution. And James says, this is for you. For followers of Jesus, for servants of the Lord and of God, this is what I have for you. So that includes us, right? So... We are scattered all over the world as a family of faith following Christ. James' letter is for us. So, uh, we're going to get into our, our first talk point today. As we get into Faith Does, can we just take a moment to pray? And we'll, we'll dive in. Father, thank you that your gospel is not, is not just a ticket to heaven. Thank you that what Jesus did changes our life. That what Jesus did restores us to a relationship with you. That when we submit ourselves to you we have all kinds of community that comes back. You heal our brokenness and you give us marching orders. Father, would you help us to hear you today? Would you give us minds and hearts that pay attention to what you say through James? Make us people that Live your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So after James does this quick introduction, James, a servant of, uh, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, which greetings is a cool word. It means joy. Okay, Have joy. I want you to have joy. I'm greeting you with excitement. Then he says, count it all joy. His greeting ties into the first thing he says. He says in verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, or brothers and sisters that would be included there. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James, James starts with something that we all have in common. We all have trials, right? We all have trouble. In this life, and he starts with a common point. He knows that this life is hard, and he's not going to pretend otherwise. Uh, he's not going to say it's all clean after you find Jesus. So he says uh, trials of various kinds, right? Uh, trials of many different kinds. So we can talk about uh, the church that was experiencing persecution, and that would be one very good application. That is a that is a fitting trial, but I think in his language, when he says trials of various kinds, trials of many kinds, he's opening it up so you can look back through your life and you can, once you start to think, I mean, the trials start to come. Your wife gets cancer. You are mocked for your belief in God and maybe you lose social status or even friends or a job because of your faith in God. Another check bounces. The voices in your head keep calling you back and back and back to that addiction. You are not experiencing relational bliss like everybody else around you is. You don't make the team or the band. You miscarry. You don't get a promotion that you think you deserve. James asks the question. He puts it right out in the open. Why? Why do we suffer such difficulties? Why does a good God allow suffering? And what is the nature of faith? And while he doesn't give a direct answer to that, he says, this is how you approach trials. When stuff comes at you in life, trials are not welcome. Trials are not discipline that you, like, self-discipline, I'm going to stick my nose to the grindstone, and I'm going to work, and it'll pay off. Trials come at you, and they are often not welcome. We would rather say no, like to the plow, to the harrow, to say, I don't want to be dug out like that. So trials, temptations, and trouble. Those are three different words that are tossed around in the Bible. They each have a little bit different idea. Trials, uh, trials are something that are sent by God to test us because God never says, I want to make your life easy. Okay? I want to continue to grow you up. So sometimes he sends us trials. Sometimes they're temptations. Temptations, as we learn later in the book of James, never from God. God never sends a temptation our way to say, hey, here's a sin that you could try. Here's an addiction you could fall back onto. That's never, ever, ever the voice of God. Okay? So we can't blame temptation on God. Temptation is the result of different forces. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes, I mean, there's spiritual battle going on all around us. So there's trials, there's temptations, and there's trouble. Trouble is just the result of living in a broken world. Uh, Years and years and years ago, I I remember uh, having a close friend who lost somebody driving on the highway. A tire came off a truck and slammed into her windshield. Okay, that's... That's not a, I can't, I'm not going to call that a trial. Like God sent the tire so that other people could grow. That seems woefully inadequate as an explanation. It's not a temptation like, oh, I'm going to steer into a tire and I'm tempted to do that. It's, that would fit into the, we live in a broken world and stuff happens. All under, I mean, God allowed it or caused it or I don't know. God is still in control, but trouble comes our way. James doesn't answer it for us. Okay? The the trouble that we have or the temptation or the trial that we have is that we never I don't know that we have a very clear picture of which is happening at the when we're in the middle of it. Right? So, if you could say this is a temptation and I need to say no to it or this is a trial and I need to I need to do or this is trouble, we don't know. James basically says, "I want you to treat stuff that comes at you in life as an opportunity to grow." I want you to treat stuff that comes at you, however painful and ever fault or not fault it was, I want you to treat it as an opportunity to grow. We don't know which one it is. So we say, let's approach it that way. Because our faith grows when we're in deep water. Heaven is coming. Thank God, heaven is coming. But while we're still here... We live in a broken world, and we're sure to be touched by the brokenness at some point or another. If you are sitting here today and you feel like, I don't know brokenness, I don't know trial, really, I will tell you in not a fear-inducing kind of way, it will come. At some point in your life, unless Jesus comes back before anything bad happens, at some point in your life, trouble will find you. It will come your way. Jesus says, in this world, you will have what? You will have trouble. And then he says, but, take heart. I've overcome the world. And James says, we're not yet finished. Who we are is not who we will be, right? Who I am is not who I'm going to become. Not who God is uh, growing inside of me. There's this balance here. Because it's true that God loves us. God loves you and accepts you just the way you are. You don't have to change to be accepted by God. You don't have to be changed to be loved by God. Jesus came as a sacrifice for you, just the way you are, sinner and all. God loves you just the way you are. But Max Lucado, I don't know if you guys have ever read anything by him. Pretty cool. Um, Max Lucado once wrote, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to let you stay that way. Okay? God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to let you stay that way. And James, the way he leans into trials and temptations is to say, don't stay the way you are. Use them as, a, as an opportunity to become who God is calling you to be. So whatever kind of trials come your way, so how can I grow through this? Not how can I make it go away. How can I, how can I grow through this? But just as a side note, abuse is not one of those, okay? If you're in a relationship where you're being abused, I don't want you to take it and look at it as a trial to endure so that you can grow up. That is sick advice. That's advice with illness all over it, okay? If you're in a relationship and someone is abusing you, the best thing that you can do is bring it into the light, Okay, bring it out of darkness and bring it into the light. You may not be able to fight that battle alone. You need to tell somebody else what is going on. James would not tell you, I don't think, to uh, just sit in the abusive relationship and grow. Okay? James says, I, I can't say James says, I'll say, if you're being abused, get out. Find help. Don't sit there. This is not the time to go through a trial and uh, look at it that way. Okay? Here's the other side note. When you're dealing with people who are in trouble, when you're dealing with people who are in a trial or temptation or just trouble coming at them, your first response should not be, consider it all joy. Okay? That is a bad approach to somebody because if, if I'm going through trial or trouble and somebody comes up and says, happy, happy, joy, joy, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> or at least want to, okay? Don't go up to a friend or someone, who, someone who's going through somebody and lead with this. Your best approach is the approach I think Jesus took when he, he saw Mary and Martha for the first time after their brother Lazarus died. You know what he did? He wept with them. And Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew that in a very short while, Lazarus was going to wake up from the dead. And yet his first motion was to weep. Some people will say he was weeping to make a connection with other people. I think Jesus, in all of his humanity, he's completely God and completely human, in all of his humanity, is crushed by the brokenness, is crushed by death. And he weeps over the death and the separation that they had experienced, even though he knows the glory that's coming. Okay? Jesus was broken by their pain. John Perkins writes, Most effective leaders are the ones who recognize real pain, lead from within that pain, and lead people out of their own pain. Most effective leaders are people who are not afraid of pain, are people who will dig in and sit with someone and weep with someone and get down in the dirt when someone's down and say, I just want to be with you. And now, as we experience this pain together, now let's move together out of it. We don't want to sit here our whole life, but let's be together and let's move out of it. I also recognize my own pain and I can lead out of that pain. John Perkins was has so much wisdom in writing that. And so the side note, the application, the what will you do, is will you you be someone who will enter into someone else's pain? Will you be someone who is, um, who refuses to take the shallow, cliche Sunday school answer that says, consider it all joy, but will be someone who will say, let's lean into this together. I want to meet you here. Consider it all joy is true. It's from God, but it's not my first step in helping somebody else. Is that good? Right? But James says we need to realize that trials aren't joyful in and of themselves. Nobody says, hey, I'm just sitting around in the field someday. I would love to get cut open. Bring the plow. For no other reason than I just love to get hurt. Okay, That's a whole different messed up way of thinking. It says James says trials aren't joyful in and of themselves. They're joyful when we, when we realize they come under the authority of a sovereign God who's accomplishing his purposes through them. I'm not done yet. And when I recognize that God is not done with me yet, then I can welcome trials and I can have joy in trials. So um, I don't know who else played soccer. I played soccer growing up, um, and I made this transition. Football was real big in my school, in my middle school, and so I played tackle football in 7th and 8th grade, and my junior high at the time went 7th, 8th, and ninth. And when I got to be a freshman, I had to decide, I've played soccer growing up as a kid in summer leagues and and all that. Um, I have to choose between playing football and playing soccer. Uh, playing football means I get to play with my peers. I get to be here at the school. Uh, playing soccer means I jump up to the high school, uh, try out for the JV team, and um, I'm kind of kind of an outcast because soccer hadn't really come into its own yet. Okay? So I choose soccer. I go to the high school. I try out, and I make the JD, JV team, which I was super pumped about, um, and then find out I didn't just make the team. I'm going to start. Okay? So I'm feeling really good about myself. I'm playing forward. I'm attacking, I'm I'm going at it, but uh, one of my tendencies is laziness. And as a freshman on the soccer team, I wasn't giving it my all. Uh, Once I made the starting job, I was like, well, I'm good. Like, now I'm good. And um, probably a third of the way or half of the way through the season, my coach came up to me and said, hey, we need to talk. I'm benching you, and you're not going to play as much. And here's the reason why, is because you're not giving everything. And he wants a starting job. He's giving everything that he can. Now, I think you're a better player than him, but I'll take somebody who gives everything over somebody who slacks off. So have a seat. That's not fun. That's not a fun word to hear from a coach that I respect and look to. You know what that did in me? It made me a big powder, and I quit the team and walked away. No, that could have been one story I wrote. Thankfully, not the story I wrote. The story I wrote said, I want to use it. I want to get back in. I want to give everything that I have. And so for the rest of the year, I just charged into it. I won my starting spot back. And at the end of the year, um, at the end of the year conference, when we're giving out awards, um, I got the most improved player award, which is something that um, I think you should cheer about right now.
0: <laughs>
1: it's ridiculous. Okay. So I get the most improved player, and as the coach is going around talking about um, everybody, he says, Shannon, to you, and he, uh, the coach, loved Jesus. Couldn't talk about it a lot in the public school setting, but he loved Jesus, and he knew I did. And so he said this, and he, I think he knew exactly what he was saying. He said, Shannon, you came in like a lamb, and you went out like a lion. Says, that is, that's the change. And I think that's the power of trials, that we, we just go around grazing and God wants us to roar, not in a Katy Perry kind of style, which is, <laughs> sorry. Uh, God says, there's, there's ferocity in you, and I want you to attack this life, and I want you to give everything that you can. Follow wholeheartedly. I want to hear it. Okay? So approach trials like a, a dumb freshman on the soccer team who doesn't know that much but knows he needs to fight for his spot back. It changed how I see trials. Now, a much less funny one, a much heavier one. When I was in Indiana in youth group, one night um, on her way to pick up her middle school brother from youth group, one of my students drove off the road and died. Uh, Three siblings in the family. And um, the, the eldest one later said, part of what happened when she died was I was able to look at people in a different way. I I had my own pain, and I could now see people in their pain. I will not ever say, God had her drive off the road so that he could grow. But part of what came from that, he grew in the face of incredible pain. He recognized, I have an opportunity here in all of the brokenness, to grow. And so I would say, whether whether you're just, you got benched and you need to fight a little harder, or your world just got rocked, the word from James applies. That you lean in and you say, God, God, what can you do in me in this time? In this time, what do you want from me in this time? He's not going to fix everything, but you can grow in it. Now, what do we do with James? What do we do with this first? Consider it all joy. One, one is that we recognize that trials help us to get very clear about what's most important to us. What kind of field are we? What is our goal in life? If our goal is to be successful or to have a nice job or to get a raise or to achieve a standing in the world to attain a certain goal or to have a certain kind of family, then trials nearly every time are going to get in the way. But if our goal is to know God, if our goal is to be transformed to look more and more like Jesus, then, then. We can take joy in trials because we know that no matter how tough the trials are, they can move us toward the goal. They don't kick us off the goal. They move us closer to it. In trials, we experience growth in godliness like we could never experience in any other way. This isn't encouraging if your goal is to have a nice, easy, carefree life with all of the circumstances going like you planned. If that's your goal, trials will never be a joy to you but when you set your sights above the stuff of this world, when you fix your eyes on God and the knowledge of Him and maturing in Him, then trials will be a joy because they will teach you to know and to love and to trust Him. So first, trials help us to get clear about what's most important to us. Second, trials help us understand our our utter dependence on God. Peter gets out of the boat. He's the only one who walks on water. And in the middle of it, he takes his eyes off Jesus and he recognizes, I need Jesus. His doubt was not doubt in Jesus because he calls for Jesus to help, right? His doubt was in, I can't believe I'm doing this. I should not be doing this. I need Jesus. Trials have a way of helping us understand that we really do need Jesus. If you don't recognize that you need Jesus, maybe it's because you haven't opened yourself up to the trials yet. Maybe it's because you're staying safe within your fences. And once you open them up, the floodgates really open, and you say, I need, I need him. So trials help us get clear about what's most important. Trials help us understand our need for God. And then trials give us an opportunity to strive for maturity. Maturity. James says, when you let the steadfastness run its course, you'll be perfect and whole. The word for perfect doesn't like we, like, I'll never sin again. It's this, you have reached wholeness. You have reached maturity. You are wholeheartedly following after Jesus. He says, in order to get there, you've got, you've got to embrace trials so that you can have this steadfastness, this patience, this endurance, this I will keep moving. And as that finishes its course, you are mature. I'm so stinking immature, it's not uh, it's not even funny. Most of you are so stinking immature, it's not funny. Okay? James says if you face into trials with patience and endurance and perseverance, The goal of maturity is there for you, that Jesus can walk you down that road. So Paul, writing most of the books in the New Testament, says, I haven't yet attained this. He says, not that I've already obtained or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So you can be mature and not mature at the same time, right? Paul says, I'm not mature yet. I'm not perfect yet. I'm not mature yet. And yet let those of us who are mature think this way. I can be a certain level of mature and still have a lot of work to go, right? Okay? So, um, we get very clear about what's important to us. We recognize our dependence on God and then trials give us uh, an opportunity to strive, to run, to give everything because faith does. Faith does something. Faith isn't just yours as a gift that God would say, just receive this and come to heaven. It says... That's true. Now do something with it. Be different because of it. Not be different so that you can get it. Because you get it, do something. Your faith does something. We practice. We discipline ourselves so that when game time comes or when recital time comes or when the the lights come on for the show, our practice brings us to freedom. We have a certain kind of freedom playing in a game that we've worked and practiced for we have a certain kind of freedom at the recital to to dance up and down the keys because we've practiced we have a certain kind of freedom when the lights come on that we don't freeze but we're able to we're able to be free because we've we've pressed faith does something we strive we run trials are not welcome they come at us they aren't games to be played. They're more like a refining fire. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, throw off everything that hinders you. Like, let's, let's be done with stuff that holds us back. Throw off everything that hinders you so that you can do what? So that you can run. So that, you, so that your faith can do something. We run. And he says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the one who wrote it into our lives, and who's the one who's going to continue to perfect it in our lives. He's the one who's going to make us mature as we run. Colossians 3.1 says we've, we set our sights on what's up here. We set our sights on the realities of heaven. We don't get stuck just seeing the world from this perspective. God gives us a different perspective to life. God can bring a different perspective to trials. So that once we know what's important to us, once we recognize our dependence on Jesus, once we recognize that trials are an opportunity to strive, to run, to do something with our faith, then we get to look forward to future fruit. That God will do something. God will grow. This will not be void effort. This will... God is going to grow something in me or through me. He's going to produce something because of the way that I lean into trial. Something is coming so that Paul can say at the end of his life, I finished the race. I finished. I fought the good fight. He leaned in. And it's not just about us. Trials give us a different way to grieve. Trials in Christ. says we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Trials, we don't just mourn that trials have come our way. We mourn trials and we grow through trials, but we do it with great hope. So, I guess concluding questions would be, what kind of field will you be? Do you want to live a safe life? Or do you want to live a a life that is open to being cut open so that you can find new life that God grows in you and through you? What kind of field will you be? What kind of leader will you be? What kind of influence will you have in others' lives? Will you use your influence to get higher than others, to push down on others so that you can grow, or will you use your influence, will you use your leadership to serve, to lift others up, an act of humility that says, I'll get lower so that I can push you higher? What kind of field will you be? What kind of leader will you be? And as you face trials, will you use them as a way to get clear about what's important? Will you use them as a way to, to identify your dependence on Jesus and fix your eyes on Him? Will you use them as an opportunity to do something with your faith? And will you look forward to future fruit whenever God wants to bring that to fruition. We're going to celebrate communion and we're going to worship. And uh, this ties in because Jesus had trouble. Jesus did not come and live a safe life, right? Jesus had trouble. He experienced his own trials. He experienced his own brokenness, but his brokenness was for us. His brokenness was so that our brokenness could get changed into wholeness. Our brokenness could be changed into something else that so we take the bread and we think about his brokenness on our behalf and we go to the cup and we think about the life and the transformation and the, the, the seeds of new life that happened in the field that Jesus is. That because his life was broken open, that he didn't run from, those, uh, from that trouble and the trials or the temptation. My life springs out of that. And then we're going, to, we're going to move into a time of worship. As we reflect on what he did and what he offers, our appropriate response is to just sit in glory, to sing out and to say, I, I give you what I have. I give you all of me. Can we pray? Father, thank you for James. Thank you for his the way that he can not mess around but deal with the stuff of life not dance around tricky issues but can go right to the heart of them we need to recognize that we live in a broken world we recognize that sometimes the brokenness comes from ourselves. sometimes uh, sometimes that's from our enemy and sometimes sometimes father it's you leading us into a place where we get broken so that we can find uh, new life in you, that we could be transformed uh, closer and closer toward maturity. As Father, we thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to embrace us where we are, but to call us into something more, something different. Thank you that you make the way that we could be transformed, that you do that work. Would you help us? Would you open us up to you? As we enter into communion, would you make us mindful of your sacrifice and the life that you offer? Could we respond in worship? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.